Hi everybody, and welcome to episode 25 of Now and Men, the podcast about men, masculinities, and gender equality. To start off with, we just wanted to say congratulations to Jason Arde, who's recently been made a professor at the University of Cambridge, which makes him the youngest ever black professor at the university. And so if um, you might remember Jason um, from episode 10 of the podcast, where we interviewed him on challenging dominant discourses about being young, black and male uh, in the UK. So do have a listen to that one if you haven't already. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, I'm here with Sandy Ruxton as always. Uh, hi, Sandy. Hi, Stephen, and hi, everyone. Um, Sandy Ruxton here. On today's episode, we're looking at men and migration, and we're talking to Dr. Katarzyna Wojnicka, who is originally from Poland and is now an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. And she's based in the Centre for European Research and the Department of Sociology and Work Science. She's also an editor-in-chief for uh, a journal called Norma, which is the International Journal for Masculinity Studies. And as well as uh, her research interests in migration, she's also interested in the sociology of gender, critical studies on men and masculinities, social movements, and European studies. Yeah, so hi, Katarzyna. It's, uh, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for being willing to come on the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me here. And yes, hi, Sandy. Hi, Stephen. I'm very happy that we have this um, opportunity to chat about men. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so, so yeah, you've been involved in a number of different studies uh, looking at kind of migrant men and masculinities. Um, so we were just wondering if you could perhaps start off by saying a little bit about, you know, why is this a topic which is worth studying? Why is this something people should be interested in? Mm -hmm. Well, I believe in general that uh, men and masculinities, as much as women and femininities and other gender issues, should be always studied in the context of all significant social phenomena. And among the significant social phenomena, uh, migration is one of the most prominent. So I believe that migration, or rather urge to migrate, is an inherent trait of human nature, if we are using this type of language. And uh, migration is a natural process in which human beings have been engaged since the beginning of their existence. And then it really requires uh, scholarly attention. And we also know very well by now that uh, migration is deeply gendered phenomena and all men, women and other genders perceive and experience it very differently. And therefore, we need research where both dimensions, so namely mobility and uh, gender, are studied. Mm. So uh, could you perhaps um, just briefly describe like the kind of main studies which you've conducted in this area, like looking at uh, men who have engaged in migration? Um, so like who are some of the main groups of of men, of, of migrants that you've spoken to? Like, where have you carried out your research? And like, what are some of the main countries which um, which these men have been migrating like uh, to and from? Yeah, so, uh, so far I have been involved in three main research projects where migrant men and um, migration in general, uh, from the gender perspective have been uh, main focus. So it started a few years ago when I was a postdoctoral researcher at the Humboldt University in Berlin, uh, where I was involved in a large European project funded by European Research Council. Um, I was involved in a very specific sub-study that was focused on the analysis of negotiations of masculinities among Polish migrant men living abroad. 
as during this project, I um, I realized also that the changes in masculinity's perceptions and performances are very significant element of migrants' trajectories. And majority of men who migrate, migrate, of course, not all of men, because it's never all, uh, has to confront their previous gender ideas, their previous uh, imaginations about masculinities, femininities, with new ones uh, that are characteristic for the host societies. And uh, during this first project, when I uh, did analysis of interviews conducted uh, with a Polish migrant men that that time lived in Germany, I realized that this confrontation of different um, different types of masculinities, different imaginations of masculinities, uh, is rather painful for very many migrants. As in majority of cases, uh, migrating men uh, somehow lose parts of their male privileges and uh, somehow they usually don't handle it well. Of course, again, I would like to underline that, that not all migrant men are actually suffering or losing privileges or kind of like experience the um, the uh, downgrade of their social status, because some migrant men, for example, in this particular case, uh, queer men who migrated from uh, Central Eastern European countries to Western European countries, might have different experiences and might have actually gained something due to migration, for example, more freedom, more space for expressing their se sexualities. But if we are talking about so-called typical migrant uh, from Central Eastern Europe, which is usually white, heterosexual, rather working class men, uh, the downgrade of status is rather typical um, migration consequence for them. And this is why I found it very interesting because these um, situations actually have many interesting implications, not only for, them, for men themselves, but also for um, host country societies, but also for the societies uh, that are associated with the um, with the countries of origin. Mm. And so that was my first time, and that was the moment when I realized that I would like to uh, dig deeper. And I have been uh, involved since then in two other projects where um, migration and masculinities intersected uh, to large extent. So um, one of them was project conducted also in Germany, and it was project that I was conducting together with a few colleagues, and we uh, focused here on young migrants living in Berlin specifically, so just one city, and we were very interested in their perceptions of friendship, family, partnership, but also gender roles. And uh, in this particular project, we actually interviewed both young men and women, and also migrants and refugees, if you wish to make this distinction. And these people were representing both first and second generations of migrants. But again, uh, due to very specific, um, very specific nature of contemporary transnational mobility patterns, we ended up talking to uh, mostly young men who came to Germany from Eastern European countries, Asian countries, and also from um, African countries. So uh, even though the project was about young migrant people, we ended up collecting quite a lot of narratives produced by uh, young uh, men who identify either as migrants or refugees. 
And finally, um, in the current project on transnational bachelors in the European Union, um, we speak to single migrant men or men who identify as single men uh, who currently live in Sweden and Italy and come from Poland, Romania, Syria and Bangladesh. And this is an ongoing project. Although right now uh, we are mostly focusing on writing papers as the fieldwork has been um, completed already. And in this particular case, because of my uh, background, language skills and also insider status, I am uh, responsible mainly for research involving um, male members of Polish community in Sweden. Mm. Yeah, I really like how your research shows how, you know, we can't generalize and homogenize migrant men too much and that there are these different power relations going on but it must be for a lot of men it must be for a lot of people in general who are migrating it must be an experience where you are you're quite vulnerable right because you're entering a potentially quite a different society different culture and that creates all sorts of challenges and discomforts so like that must be quite confronting for for lots of men where they're not you know they're not used to or not expected it to be to be vulnerable i guess Absolutely. And this is why gender is so important, because these particular experiences are also shared by some women, but mm. are much more um, affecting men than women, because mm. according to research, uh, many women gain a lot after migrating to other countries. And with regard to men, there is one particular group which actually can end up in, you know, upgrading their status. And these men are so-called, although I hate this term, expats from United Kingdom, <laughs> United States, Canada and Australia. So this is the very small um, group of men who actually can uh, gain something with regard to, you know, their masculine privileges after migrating to countries like basically any other countries. But majority of migrants are facing uh, difficulties and many of them um, lose their status and many of them land in uh, Connell's um, uh, marginalized masculinities kind of like a ghetto in a way. We'll probably ask you a bit more about uh, the relationship of Connell's work with migration in a minute but uh, uh, I wondered on, on a different note I mean in recent years you know public attention in Europe has mainly focused on asylum refugee movements from countries where there are high levels of violence and conflict so you've mentioned some of them you know there's Iran Iraq Syria Eritrea Somalia and Afghanistan all of these but but your work has mainly focused on focused more on internal migration within the European Union, particularly on Polish migrants, as you've said, since since in, enlargement in 2004. So um, why is it, though, that the experiences of, of white, predominantly Christian migrant men tend to be less studied? And, you know, uh, given that Poles are amongst the largest group of migrants to European countries, such as the UK and Germany, why has there been less focus on them? And what, what does that tell us about public attitudes, public debates? Hmm. Well, in my opinion, it's because um, because of the fact that, uh, for example, Polish migrants or any other European white migrants um, are perceived as almost the same as, you know, local men, at least in terms of masculinities and gender attitudes. And uh, but of course, the whole discussion about masculinity and migration, as you probably know very well, started um, after so-called migration crisis in 2015 when many young, often single men have sought refuge in Europe. 
And for some reasons, some people started expressing concerns that this man might be dangerous for, you know, Europe, European women, so-called European values, which suddenly were linked to gender equality, even by right-wing politicians and journalists. So it's exactly uh, what you have just described. And of course, this, uh, this discourses, these discussions have even uh, started to be even more um, pronounced after New Year's uh, sexual assaults in Cologne in Germany that happened uh, between 2015 and 2016, when some men that happened to be migrants as well assaulted women in the public um, spaces in, uh, in Germany. So since then, the migration and masculinity uh, discussion has been narrowed to, um, to exactly only non-European uh, migrants, usually non-white, non-Christian men, uh, who started to be seen or continued to be seen as some sort of a threat. And that, um, that threat has been uh, even uh, um, defined by one of the men masculinity scholars, uh, Australian sociologist Paul um, Scheibelhofer, uh, as dangerous foreign masculinity. And this dangerous foreign masculinity associated with migration uh, was almost exclusively or has been almost exclusively uh, linked to migrants coming from outside Europe. And therefore, whenever um, we hear in the news, uh, in the media, um, the uh, term migrant men, we have immediately this association that they are men coming from outside Europe and they are very much different than we are. Their masculinity is very much different than the masculinity that is performed uh, by European men. And therefore, uh, we need to talk about them exclusively. And uh, this is, of course, also reflected in research because um, only few studies are dedicated to study white, rather privileged migrant men. And this includes Polish men as well. And majority of studies about migration and masculinities uh, are about um, uh, men coming to Europe from uh, from other uh, non-European countries and regions. So uh, this is one of the reasons why Polish masculinity is not that much uh, discussed in the literature, scholarly literature, and also in the public discussion, because of this assumption that they are men, okay, but they are European, they are white, they are Christian, so they must be almost the same as uh, local men, let's say Swedish men or, um, or German men. And uh, they should not cause any troubles when it comes to, you know, being integrated uh, in the uh, local society and that their masculinities are very similar to the masculinities that are perceived as normative uh, for, um, for local men. And our research shows that this is not necessarily uh, the case. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned there um, Christianity, religion is quite an important factor in all this, isn't it? And, I mean, Catholicism in particular, perhaps. I mean, I, I'm aware that some of the some of the Catholic churches in the UK had a something of a renaissance when Poles came in larger numbers. So, so I, I think that's interesting. And of course, obviously, quite a few Poles came here after the Second World War. So there was an existing community, Polish community here. I mean, I, you can't necessarily assume that those who came you know, just after the war, have the same interests and perspectives as those who've come recently. But uh, um, there was certainly sort of fertile ground for integration, perhaps one might say. But um, one, one other thing you, you mentioned earlier was how you, as Polish yourself, you're an insider 
in relation to the research. I, I'm wondering how that how that affects the research in your view. I mean, obviously, you must have a, a you know an understanding of of where people have come from, and uh, that must be helpful. But at the same time, you know, must be challenges in being an insider. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, actually, right now we are writing a paper uh, discussing this dichotomy, like insider outsider, when it comes to um, masculinity research, because um, our team. Uh, the team that is involved in um, research on single migrant men in European Union is composed from uh, three local men that are doing uh, uh, research on migrant men coming to their countries and one migrant woman who does research with um, other migrants coming from exactly the same country. So you can imagine that we have very much different experiences and the dynamic of uh, fieldworks in each case is very much different. So me as an insider, of course, there is a lot of perks. Language is one of the most obvious one, but it's not just language, it's also familiarity with you know, the context. And also um, me as a migrant woman, uh, I did not have quite a lot of problems with um, recruiting uh, research participants. Somehow they trusted me more maybe than uh, they trusted um, my colleagues that uh, spent much more time on convincing people that they, uh, uh, they're supposed to uh, help us with our research project. So the trust was definitely one of the perks. Um, another thing was that, you know, also my gender is quite significant factor here because um, in this specific project, we have been talking to men who are single and very often quite lonely. And I, uh, I realized that for many of my research participants, um, interview and the, you know meeting me and talking to me was one of the kind of like opportunities to actually leave home and to have you know pleasant conversation uh, with a person who, as they think, understands him them and also shares uh, similar opinions and values, which was also very interesting, um, interesting um, discovery. Uh, but then, of course, as you said, there are also, um, there are also issues which are less pleasant. Uh, my insiderness, uh, well, first of all, it is connected to uh, this kind of like um, belief that I share exactly the same opinions about Swedish society, about, you know, gender equality, about feminism as they do on me because I'm Polish. Uh, on occasions, I was kind of like um, part of the conversations which were uh, very problematic in terms of, you know, the kind of like uh, narratives that could be perceived sometimes as racist or homophobic or sexist. And that happened mostly uh, in my case because for some reasons uh, my uh, research into research partners who had this kind of um, this kind of opinions they believed that well I have the same because I'm Polish I must also think that Swedish society is not very great or other things that have been said so my colleagues did not have this kind of like a conversations and um, I did and emotionally sometimes it was very difficult. Mm. Well, that's really fascinating. I mean, and, and how do you feel? I mean, you obviously left Poland yourself. Was was that primarily because you felt that you know academically you could benefit from, you know, moving to other countries, or you know, or was it to do with what was going on in Poland? Because obviously, you know, 
there's, there's um, some very difficult issues there in relation to gender equality. So actually many reasons. Uh, of course, academia. So I left Poland at the beginning. I left Poland only for, I thought, a few months because I got ah. a scholarship at the, at the, I think it was Humboldt University first and then Freie University in Berlin. So I migrated only for a few months, but this few months evolved in, you know, I don't know, 14 years now. <laughs> so uh, during the first two years, I would say, I still thought that I will come back to Poland. But after two years, I realized that, in fact, if I want to continue my research, my critical research on men and masculinities, I have much more opportunities in Germany uh, than that time I would have in Poland. So after two years, I decided that um, I'm staying in Germany and I will continue my academic career abroad. Uh, another factor was my well private life. And I met... Um, my partner uh, that time was was from Germany, and it was much easier for me to be in Germany than for him to uh, move to Poland for various reasons. And last but not least, the political situation. Um, when I left Poland, it was 2009, so it wasn't tragic, but, uh, but it wasn't great at the same time. So I wouldn't say it was the main reason, but within time, of course, this political situation also, um, at least right now, keeps me away from Poland. So I do not have plans to come back to Poland at any point right now. Was there anything in particular which led you to take an interest, you know, in the kind of men and masculinities field and in, in, in migrant men in particular? Was there anything, you know, yeah, like what, what led you to kind of be interested in that? So that has happened many years ago, I think, Yes, 2006, when I started my uh, PhD program, before I've been involved in, um, I studied sociology and I was involved in um, gender gender studies uh, path that we that time had at my uh, home department. And uh, I was very interested in gender studies and gender equality issues. And at some point I realized that one cannot talk about gender equality uh, without including men and masculinity question. There. And uh, in 2005-2006 in Poland, uh, this discussion about men and masculinities was very underdeveloped. So I was, to be fair, one of the first scholars that actually started to do research on men and masculinities in the context of uh, gender equality, gender equality activism, and started to, um, to actually claim that uh, we cannot have proper gender studies without including uh, men and masculinity's perspective. So I just realized that there is not much done in Poland about that. And, you know, I decided to fill this gap in knowledge, as we all should do as scientists. <laughs> and with regard to masculinities, after, um, after I moved to Sweden and I completed one of my projects about um, fathers' rights activism in Sweden and the UK, actually, I was looking for another opportunities and somehow I figured that uh, masculinities and migration can be interesting uh, new field still connected to my main interest, which is men and masculinities and gender equality in general. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I just mm -hmm. figured that I need something new, but still kind of like um, connected uh, to my previous projects and my previous interests. So that's that's how it happened. <laughs> um, and you mentioned as well about the situation in um, in Poland, and um, yeah, we were just wondering if you might 
you know, might be willing to talk a little bit more about that, really, and how you view the situation there. Um, in particular, I suppose, you know, the, 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 the attacks on, on women's rights in recent years, um, such as the right to abortion, of course, also the kind of anti-LGBTQ agenda of the kind of governing law and justice party and religious and nationalist groups. Um, yeah, how, how do you see the situation there currently? And like, do you see much scope for kind of positive change in the, in the foreseeable future? Yes. So first of all, I would like to underline that whatever is happening in Poland right now with regard to anti-gender and anti-LGBTQ rights mobilization is characteristic for more countries in the region. So it's not just Poland, it's quite a lot of countries uh, that are part of this uh, Central Eastern Europe region. And well, let's be fair, it's happening maybe uh, to a smaller extent so far in other countries that are perceived as more progressive. So if mm. we think about the United States and whatever is happening there right now in terms of abortion laws mm. and also anti-trans policies, um, or if we think about, I don't know, attacks on gender studies uh, that happen in Denmark and Sweden right now. And also I'm sure that many alarming things are happening in the UK uh, uh, right now. Um, I would just like to say that this is like a general trend. It's not just mm. Poland. Poland mm. is not just like isolated island that, mm. well, that has these crazy ideas with regard to gender and um, sexual minorities uh, issues. But of course, that said, I'm of course very uh, concerned about the development uh, in Poland, about the Polish situation and uh, whatever is happening with regard to uh, limitation of, of women's rights, with regard to uh, reproductive health, whatever is happening with regard to LGBTQ people's rights, and I'm not only talking about um, lack of um, legislation that enables um, non-heterosexual people to actually get married, but also this uh, very upsetting legislations that has been made on a local level, which is called like zones free from LGBTQ people uh, is really, really, uh, it's really sad. And uh, I'm really worried about uh, about uh, whatever is happening in my home country. However, I try to be positive. And one of the positive development is that uh, whatever is happening, whatever has been done uh, uh, by the government uh, with regard to laws, legislations, or like, certain campaigns, it is met with a great resistance as Polish civil society has been giving a significant response to all of these upsetting um, ideas, so to speak. So Polish civil society is extremely strong, has been always strong, but now we can really see how many people are actually involved in different types of activism. And this activism includes um, pro-choice mobilization, uh, which is extremely strong these days. I mean, you've seen millions of people are protesting against um, anti-abortion legislations in the last, I would say, seven years now. Uh, this also uh, this also concerns queer mobilizations, which is much stronger than when I left Poland. So the situation is not good, but I'm hopeful and um, I believe that it will change eventually. And I only hope that other countries will not follow the current um, Polish government direction. And 
I also would like to underline that whatever the government is actually proposing is not necessarily supported by the majority of Polish citizens. Yeah, yeah. That, that kind of came up in our last episode as well, actually, where we were talking about the situation in Turkey, you know, that it, perhaps even among uh, people with progressive attitudes, there's a tendency like, you know, here in the UK, for example, to assume that the kind of situation in Eastern Europe, for example, is so much worse, so much more patriarchal and, and so on. And perhaps we don't look critically enough at our own context in relation to that, which kind of perhaps connects to how different different migrant groups are seen as well as, as your research highlights. Um, so, yeah, perhaps perhaps we could we could go back to that and talk about that a bit more. Um, so I suppose one interesting thing you highlight is how, in spite of the fact that men have, have always been at the centre of migration research by virtue of so many migrants being men, I suppose it's only more recently through the work of people like yourself that that's come to be seen in more gendered ways. And uh, yeah, so perhaps traditionally the focus has more been on the kind of labor market position or on the male migrants as being this kind of threat, as, as you mentioned, and linked to things like the idea that they're linked to things like criminality and sexism or even terrorism. Um, yeah, and, and have tended to be seen as quite a homogenous group as well. Um, and so you've shown the kind of the importance of an intersectional approach here. Um, so yeah, could you perhaps say a little bit more about like how does your work... Um, what you know the work you've done on the experiences of young single male migrants how does that add to our understanding of, of how they construct and kind of manage their their masculinity mm-hmm. well first of all a majority of our uh, research participants in this project about single migrant men are not necessarily young so mm-hmm. um because we have quite broad definition of a single singlehood, then uh, we also speak to people who are divorced, to people who actually have been involved in many relationships before they migrated. So they are not uh, super young. Some of them are, but I would say the the average age is around 40. But anyways, uh, well, what we see very clearly um, after analyzing our our, interviews that we collected is that the experience of migration is very significant for the process of renegotiations of masculinity. And majority of migrant men that participated in our uh, research uh, project um, has gone through this process. So as I already mentioned, many of them uh, needed to deal with um, with the situation when uh, their, their social status uh, downgraded. And that was mostly due to their gender. As uh, in majority of cases, the, their position in the country of origin was way higher than uh, the position they have currently in the uh, in the host societies. So um, after they migrate, they actually lost quite a lot of capitals that they used to have uh, in their home countries. And um, among these capitals, of course, um, I do not only refer to economic capital, which is quite obvious, uh, but also social and cultural capitals, uh, which in specific situations, like uh, in, in, in the case of our research participants, also translate to sexual capital that is important uh, for uh, the men who are actually single and are trying to find new partners while being broad. And then this downgrade of uh, social status um, is uh, rather painful for them, majority of them, not all of them, of course. And they cope differently with this new situation. So, uh, for example, some Polish queer men who migrated to Sweden or migrated to Germany, and this is also um, the, uh, the same finding from my previous project, 
they are actually pretty happy because um, they can express their sexualities in Sweden, in Germany, much more openly than uh, they could have done it in Poland. So for them, migration is a positive experience, most in majority of cases, but they are rather a minority because majority of migrants who usually are right now um, heterosexual and rather working class, given, given the uh, specificity of the post-accession migration kind of like um, character. And they are, of course, way less fortunate uh, in this aspect. So for them, migration is a difficult experience, uh, which is connected to, um, well, downgrading of their status, becoming part of this very, um, very broad definition of, you know, mm. marginalized masculinities. And due to that, many of them try to compensate their new position and try to usually produce uh, or develop some sort of like a narratives about themselves, about their masculinity, but also about masculinities of other men that help them uh, somehow feeling better and reconnect to their previous, maybe not necessarily hegemonic, but rather complicit uh, masculinity status. So uh, very often I uh, face the situation when I witness or observed um, or um, heard the narratives about uh, masculinities that is typical for, for example, Swedish men. And also, on the other hand, masculinities that are uh, that are uh, characteristic for other migrants, because Polish migrants have a tendency to situate themselves between, let's say, Swedish masculinities and other migrants' masculinities. And then in the first case, when it comes to uh, local masculinities, so for example, Swedish or previously German, uh, I heard quite uh, many narratives about uh, how Swedish or German men are not masculine anymore. So their masculinity is described as soft, as feminine, and uh, they are not seen as a real man anymore because, you know, they are uh, not violent anymore. They are very much dominated by women. And this is something that I take from the... Uh, interviews and uh, Polish men kind of like a frame their own masculinity as you know the last man standing in Europe the only real man that actually left in Europe the only real men are Polish men because they still know how to be a real man unlike Swedish men or German men mm -hmm. but on the other hand uh, they also uh, situate themselves as um, uh, in opposition to other migrants and other migrants' masculinities, and they usually describe them as dangerous and not civilized. And again, in this context, Polish men uh, represent the ideal type of masculinity that is not dangerous to women. And even more, Polish men often see themselves as some sort of like a protectors of European values, gender equality suddenly, very often, and protectors of women, that uh, might be hurt by this, you know, dangerous non-white uh, non-white migrants, and also they claim that they are the only kind of like um, group of men who are able to protect others from, you know, non-European masculinities, because local men are unable to do that due to um, lack of so-called real masculine traits 
and they are just hopeless and um, powerless right now. So the negotiations of masculinities, migrant masculinities, uh, are very much contextualized by the existence of oppositional types of masculinities represented either by local men or by uh, other migrants, usually non-white, non-European, non-Christian. Um, you've been critical there of the, the concept of protective masculinity, and, and you described how uh, Polish migrant men maintain a sense of their own privilege and power by emphasising perhaps their role as, as breadwinners and protectors. Um, to play devil's advocate for a moment, you know, others might see breadwinning, um, particularly in the context of migration, sending back remittances to support families, you know, that could be seen as a positive aspect of care for others. H how do you make sense of that dilemma? Mm -hmm. Yes, so for me, protective masculinity is actually uh, the opposition to caring masculinity, which you actually mentioned, right. uh, in my opinion. So um, to me, breadwinning, understood as masculine uh, masculine care is a road to nowhere. So I only perceive breadwinning as a form of care if it's uh, degendered. So both men and women are breadwinners. And uh, as long as we are actually associating breadwinning only with masculinities, then we are reproducing uh, unequal gendered power relations uh, between men and women. So for me, care is something very much different than protection. Right. Protection always requires uh, domination and and some sort of um, is connected to putting one group or one gender uh, on the top of uh, power hierarchies. While caring is much more flat, much more um, much more equal way of you know interacting with other people. And therefore, I came up with this particular um, definition of protective masculinity to make this distinction between something which is positive, which is care, and connected in a uh, case of masculinities to caring masculinity, and something which is still uh, another facet of a rather patriarchal way of uh, looking at uh, male and female um, gender rules. I just wanted to pick up on the idea of like hybrid masculinity as well, because I think doesn't your research highlight some interesting things there in terms of like attitudes among some of the men you interviewed towards homosexuality, for example, that, you know, the, the range of different opinions towards that influenced by things like age, for example, and that perhaps some men, you know, might position themselves as being quite progressive by saying like, you know, I'm, I'm okay with, with gay rights and things like that, but at the same time also disassociating themselves from that and, and only being comfortable with it so far kind of thing. So, so yeah, do, do you want to talk a bit about that? I mean, hybrid, uh, hybrid masculinity, it's, it is an interesting concept, and I have uh, used it in my um, in my study on third culture kids that I uh, conducted together with a colleague Agnieszka Trompka a few years ago, and we used this concept in a case of male migrants who actually were a bit different than the migrants uh, that I have been working with right now, because majority of them were rather um, middle class people with quite um, quite high capitals, both cultural, often economic. And uh, migration, of course, also influenced the way they perceived themselves as men. They also, uh, migration also influenced um, their masculinities, but a little bit differently, because due to having certain capitals, they didn't experience as much marginalization as the men that I'm, uh, I have been researching right now. So for them, the migration or 
mobility because they didn't even use most of the time the terms migrants they they use the term expat uh, uh, it caused uh, less challenges and then many of them actually somehow internalized the new norms uh, that were significant for for the host societies they were living at so for example one of the research uh, partner that time was a polish man who currently uh, that time at least lived in norway and um, he didn't have problems with you know kind of like accepting the gender equality norms that are much more much more uh, internalized in Norway than they are in Poland. And he also spoke quite highly about you know, feminism and also um, sexual diversity that is uh, much more um, visible in Norway than uh, it was in Poland that time. But simultaneously, his masculinity was hybrid because his narrative about himself, about his gender um, identity, was very much of this um, cherry-picking character, you know. So um, you, when you are like when your masculinity is hybrid, it means that very often, and also this is the definition that has been developed by Michael Messner uh, or Tristan Bridges, that uh, very often it includes some elements that uh, in the past were associated with marginalized masculinities or subordinated masculinities. It is associated with acceptance of like the general idea of gender equality and feminism, but simultaneously hybrid masculinity is also characterized by, well, rather lack of willingness to confront and to get rid of male privileges. So, you know, it's just this kind of like a very, I would say, um, very comfortable way of being this, you know, new progressive man. I mean, accepting diversity, uh, being like pro-gender equality, but simultaneously not seeing uh, on male privileges and not confronting them somehow, just forgetting about the fact that gender hierarchies uh, are about power. And as long as you don't really uh, reflect on your own privilege and your own high position in the hierarchies, you cannot be really progressive and really gender equal. So this is the understanding of uh, hybrid masculinity that I have. And I have used it before in the past, but it doesn't really apply to a majority of uh, research participants uh, that we have in our current um, project. Mm. And just briefly as well, I mean, your research, and I think you argue, you know, for the need to have a, to take on a kind of spatial, you know, understanding or perspective as part of our, you know, if we're going to adopt like an intersectional approach, like studying men and masculinities, you know, that we need to think about the role of space in, in that. And could you just perhaps briefly just explain, you know, why that is so important in your eyes, perhaps, you know, why your research has, has highlighted that? Well, um, spatial perspective basically mean that physical mobility changes the performances and perceptions of masculinities uh, as it significantly influences the positionality of men who are mobile. So, like I said before, if you have a Polish, heterosexual, well-educated middle-class man whose, let's say, company got bankrupt in Poland and who decided to migrate in order to um, earn some money and, um, and change his uh, current situation, you can actually see very clearly that um, his position in Poland was very much different from the position that he has in the host country. And then 
this spatial issue is extremely important because this Polish man can only migrate 20 kilometers because this is for some uh, regions in Poland, the distance to Germany. And this 20 kilometers, this, this space, physical space, changes his situation dramatically. So he moves to Berlin, let's say, and starts to work as a blue collar worker, as majority of Polish migrants work uh, in Germany. And his whole life is completely different and his masculinity is completely different. His position in the society is completely different. And we are physically talking only about 20 kilometers difference. Mm -hmm. So, of course, this is uh, this is all intersectionality and uh, the fact that many factors influences the changes in uh, people's uh, positionality and status. But uh, it is very important to acknowledge this um, spatial perspective as well, because then he's coming back again, this 20 kilometers, and again, his masculinity is different. Mm. So this is our very small contribution to this uh, very important intersectional, um, intersectional perspective that we use in all our research about uh, masculinities and migration. I'm finding your, your uh, uh, research on understanding the position and the perspectives of migrant men and how they're seen and so on. It's, this is all, all fascinating. I'm wondering, too, what's the relevance of your work to development of public policy? Can you talk about that or, or is that not what you're primarily interested in? You know, are there things that would help <laughs> um, to, you know, support better integration or... Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you could say anything about that. I mean, of course, I, I, I decided to become sociologist because I wanted to change the world. So uh, <laughs> I hope that my research will be taken under consideration by the policymakers um, in Sweden, in Poland, in Europe, elsewhere. So, yes, this is the ultimate goal of my research, for sure. And, uh, well, in this particular case, when you are talking about migration and masculinities, I would like to underline and kind of like spread this um, message that, you know, there are different men, different migrants, and that masculinity has to be taken under consideration. For example, when, I don't know, the programs that are supposed to uh, increase the integration of migrants into host society are, are designed. I haven't seen a program which, okay, no, this is not true. I've I've seen maybe two programs that were actually very much focused on masculinities with regard to to uh, migrants' uh, integrations, but they were very small. One was in Norway, one was in Austria, and uh, I believe that uh, we need more uh, gender-sensitive uh, policies that are aimed at increasing the level of integration among um, among different groups of migrants in different uh, host societies. Yes, and. If it's not sort of uh, grinding the gears too much to ask you a slightly different kind of question, um, I mean, obviously, you know, you've not done specific research on uh, refugee movements from Ukraine, but at the current time, it's almost impossible to not consider the impact of what's happening as a result of the war. And, you know, overwhelmingly, it's Ukrainian women and children who are moving to other European countries, Poland in particular, whereas uh, the vast majority of Ukrainian men are, are staying uh, in Ukraine, either willingly or, or compulsorily. Um, but as you said before, migrations, it is a deeply gendered experience. And I'm wondering whether you have any reflections based on your work of how Ukrainian women and children may be faring, either in Poland or, or elsewhere. Do you have a sense of, of that? Is that possible to to 
explore? Well, so uh, for me, this particular situation, unfortunately, is a very good example that shows how migration and seeking refuge abroad, for example, are gendered phenomena. So in Poland, currently, we have two types of refugees, but only one type is considered as real and deserving refugees. And here I'm talking about Ukrainian women and children who have been welcomed uh, to a large extent in Poland and who are perceived as, you know, real refugees. And chance they do deserve our help and attention. And this is, of course, um, undeniable, and I totally agree with this perception. Of course, they need our help and, uh, and protection. Uh, however, at the same time, only some kilometers up north, uh, and sorry that I'm using the metric system, but um, sure <laughs> uh, uh, you can actually guess uh, what I mean. Uh, so, uh, some kilometers up north uh, on the Polish-Belarusian border, um, every day, dozens of people who escape their home countries outside Europe, often due to the war as well, are treated very differently. They are treated as criminals and they are denied refuge in Poland. And what is the difference between those two groups of people who are actually escaping dangerous, um, dangerous situations that may occur uh, in their com home countries? Well, one of the difference is gender, uh, because unlike uh, in the case of people coming to Poland uh, from Ukraine, uh, many of, um, of people who are trying to come to Poland um, from Belarus are men. So that's the major difference, but also race, of course, because um, unlike Ukrainian women and children, many of them are not white. So. Uh, you can see that migration experiences and also perceptions of migrants are very different depending on whose these migrants actually are. And gender is one of the most crucial factors that actually puts people in very different uh, situations. And this also is connected to Ukrainian citizens because, as you said, a majority of them right now are women and children, but also many Ukrainian men are also afraid of whatever can happen to them due to the war. And they also would like to seek for refuge in Poland or elsewhere. Of course, they are not allowed according to Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian law, but that's not the case here. Uh, the case is that even if some Ukrainian men are actually already in Poland or, I don't know, Sweden or Germany, uh, they are way less welcome than, uh, than, than women because somehow people actually um, expect them to stay in Ukraine and to put their life in danger and fight uh, with, the, um, with the perpetrators. And this is only because they are men. So because they are men, they are actually denied their right to actually uh, being protected. And because they are men, they are actually seen as less deserving um, than women and children. So um, I would... I'm not happy that this example, um, I'm not happy that the situation happened and I wish we didn't have this example, but we do have it right now. And we can see how, um, how gender actually shapes uh, the uh, migration experience of different uh, groups of people. Well, thanks so much for giving us such a um, real insight 
into the complexities, the hierarchies, the contradictions of the migrant experience. I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I think it's been fascinating. Mm. And uh, I just wanted to thank you for coming on the episode. So thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invite. I can talk for another one hour, but I know that we won't. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, I mean, we could totally do that as well because it's so, so interesting. So, no, but, but yeah, we should probably stop just to, yeah, so otherwise we, we could go on forever. But thank you, thank you. To the people who will listen to that eventually. Yeah. No, but thank you very much uh, for talking to us. It's much appreciated. Thank <laughs> Thanks. Well, Sandy, that was such an interesting conversation with Katagina, wasn't it? I mean, so, so many different avenues uh, that her research has explored in interesting ways in relation to men and migration. Um, I believe, uh, didn't you actually do some work for a while when you were at Oxfam on kind of migration and asylum? I mean, do you, do you want to talk a little bit about that and how things have changed yeah, over time? Yeah, since I can you did say a little work? bit about that. I mean, I, I, yes, I was at Oxfam sort of from about uh, 1997, I think, when Labour came in. For, and then I was there for the best part of 10 years. And at that time, some of the key issues we were working on were things like the dispersal system, whereby, you know, asylum seekers were moved to different parts of the country away from the sort of main population centre in London, and, and also the voucher system as well, you know, whereby uh, asylum seekers were given vouchers that they could use in designated shops um, and we campaigned pretty hard against that system. So that there was a joint campaign, Oxfam, Refugee Council and Transport and General Workers Union. And of course, at that time, um, Bill Morris was the head of the T uh, G. so prominent black politician with, with very strong links into government. So um, we did actually win that campaign and, and vouchers for, for all categories of asylum seekers were, were withdrawn. As a result, I mean, I think they, they may still be in place for certain categories now. But, but you know, when I think now, today, you know, today we're recording on the day that new, uh, what I would term anti-refugee um, legislation is being introduced into Parliament by the UK government, which is going to prevent anyone crossing the channel from having their asylum claim processed. I mean, it's extraordinary how, how the uh, whole agenda has shifted, really. You know, and of course that could leave tens of thousands in detention or destitute, you know, treated as criminals. Um, I mean, it's not a crime to seek asylum, you know. There's international law which protects the right to asylum and we need safe routes. We need a fair asylum system with timely decision-making. We need responsibility sharing with our European partners, you know. And and we mustn't forget also that I, I think it's about... 86% 86% of uh, refugees stay in neighbouring countries to, to those they've come from. You know, it's it's primarily um, developing countries that take responsibility for refugee movements. It's not places like the UK, despite what you what you hear. Anyway, sorry, that's a bit of a rant, but uh, you might want to add to that, Stephen. <laughs> well, no, I, I totally agree with you, Sandy. I think there's a lot to rant about, isn't there? I mean, even within Europe, right, the UK takes a very small proportion of refugees. You know, if, if we look at the situation in Poland right now, for example, you know, with the war in Ukraine and how many Ukrainians are in Poland compared to the UK, and we're yet we're projecting ourselves as this great ally to Ukraine. And then, yeah, you've got, you know, uh, like our Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, as we were recording this episode, claiming that without this new law being introduced that you mentioned, 100 million people could qualify for asylum in the UK. I mean, you know, just utterly ridiculous and quite worrying statements, really, isn't it? You know, the, the level of kind of xenophobia, which is being 
um, pushed out by by government and media here is is really quite concerning. And and of course, this all does connect to gender as well, right? Because you've got these hierarchies of of uh, migrants, refugees, asylum seekers. Like who's taken seriously, who's seen as being a legitimate migrant, who isn't. And um, obviously people from Ukraine are seen as, as somehow being more valid. So you've got race as a huge factor, but also gender, I think, right? This idea that somehow if it's a man seeking asylum, then he must be dangerous and scary and illegitimate and not in need of help and not be vulnerable. Um, and that somehow that's, if he's a man, that then that's seen as being an okay reason to deny somebody uh, help. Or, or this idea, for example, connecting to what uh, Katarzyna was talking about in terms of protective masculinity, right? That somehow like these these migrant men pose a threat to like, ah, women and girls, you know, and that, uh, you know, men who are migrants are somehow uniquely deviant and dangerous and kind of backward in their attitudes with regards to gender, um, as if we don't have huge issues in this country anyway with, with violence against women and girls, which we're really not doing anywhere near enough to tackle um, Anyway, you know, so, I mean, even recently, you know, you've had um, these protests by kind of far right groups here in the UK, right, outside hotels where asylum seekers are being being placed. And uh, it seems like a big claim that they're making is that these men pose a threat to to our women and girls. So you're, you're getting these ideas about protective masculinity being used, I suppose, as a way of, of furthering the kind of scapegoating of, of migrants and, um, yeah, and kind of uh, attacking them, um, really. Mm. Yeah. And her, she also made me think when she was talking about Ukraine, about the, uh, uh, again, you just mentioned this point about the hierarchies that, uh, you know, mm. massing on the border are groups from other countries uh, who are also, you know, seeking protection, uh, but who are not accorded the same um, recognition or status as the Ukrainians are, you know. Um, mm. And I think also it reminded me too of the episode that we did with, with Luis mm. from Sweden. Mm. And he talked about yes. a, a refugee family from Ukraine who are staying with him. I don't know if they're still there, but mm. they, they were at that time about a year ago. Mm. And uh, the dad was with them as well. And the dad had mm. uh, been outside Ukraine when the conflict started. And he had decided mm. to to stay with the family. Um, mm. But, of course, you know, that could make him be designated a, a traitor, a coward, and, you know, one wonders what his, what his life would be like if he went back to Ukraine at any point, because he didn't mm. stay and fight, or he didn't go back to fight. So there's some real complexities around gender, as you say. Yeah, and class as well, right? And, and all these things intermingling, because, yeah, as, as Katarzyna was talking about, in terms of, like, how we see some migrant men as being these kind of uh, expats, you know, if they're perhaps from middle or upper class backgrounds especially, you know, that that's somehow completely different from what we, what we generally class as migration, for example. Um, but yeah, anyway, I think that's probably enough uh, from us for one, one episode. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, everybody, uh, as always, for listening. Do subscribe if you haven't already and share the podcast with your friends. And um, yeah, we'll speak to you again soon. And as always, do contact us at nowamen at gmail.com if you have uh, any questions or, or comments. Thank you so much. Yep, thanks for listening and uh, speak to you soon. Oh, and Sandy, don't forget to, uh, to, to try a Polish donut when you get a chance. <laughs>